This morning, as we continue to worship, Lord, this morning we are, there's been a number of things and ways that you continue to reveal yourself, and we thank you for that and for the ways that you stir in us a longing to know you, and we thank you for the kids that, that participated in VBS, and, and we pray that you would continue to plant those seeds and stir in them a longing to know you. Pray for those two kids that made decisions to follow you for the first time. Lord, that that seed would, would plant deep and that there would just be a deep longing for them to, to discover more and more about you and just uh, develop their friendship with you, God. Lord, this morning, that's our, that's our prayer as well, that we would just develop a longing to, to know you and to uh, experience you in a fresh way this morning. We pray that's in your name. Amen. Well, when I was 14 years old, I knew the time was coming for me to get my driver's license. I had set this personal goal for myself that when I turned 16, I was going to get my, I was going to take my driver's test and I was going to pass. And I, I longed for the freedom and to feel the, the wind against my face as I drove my parents' Plymouth Reliant K car uh, with some sweet tunes playing on the cassette radio. It was everything that a teenage boy could ask for. I knew that in order for that to happen, though, I had to learn how to drive first. I had watched my parents drive, but I quickly discovered that observing someone drive was very different than being behind the wheel of the car itself. I also discovered that having the information on how to drive the car was only one piece that I had to learn, only the one piece that I had to learn about driving, but I also had to understand the rules of the road. I had to understand the nuances of being a defensive driver and the signs and the symbols and and all the different unspoken things that that they don't always teach you. It wasn't until I was behind the wheel that I discovered that driving changed depending on the conditions. And I had to take into consideration other drivers and and know that at times I needed to react and adjust accordingly depending on what the other drivers might be doing around me. I also discovered that the best way to prepare me for the discipline of driving was in this handbook that I had that would help me to be the most effective driver that I could be and ensure that I was safe and sound while I was on the road. This morning, as you and I consider what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I think there are some parallels here in terms of how the Bible actually helps you and I to live our lives as well, so that we would know who God is and how to live a life that pleases Him, and how to experience and view the world around us through the lens of God rather than ourselves. Now, admittedly, this illustration does break down if we just consider the Bible as an instruction manual. The Bible is so much more than just a list of do's and don'ts or a list of parameters to work within, that it actually has the potential to transform our lives. Every year, the Barna Research Group out of the United States, they conduct a survey to assess the value that Americans place on the Bible. Now, although these results are American findings, I suspect there are some, some similarities in terms of what the results might be here in Canada. And so I wanted to share just a couple of the results just to give us an idea of, of how our culture views the role of the Bible within our lives. So the first question, do you think our country would be worse off or better off or about the same without the Bible? Do you think our country would be worse off, better off, or about the same without the Bible? 49% said that we would be worse off without the Bible. I feel like that's that's pretty good. Half the population thinks that we'd be, our, our culture, our society would be worse off without the Bible. 39% said about the same. 
and 13, 13% thought they would be better off. Another question. Do you believe that the Bible contains everything a person needs to know to live a meaningful life? Do you believe that the Bible contains everything a person needs to know to live a meaningful life? 68% said strongly agree or agree somewhat. Two-thirds of the population said that they think that the Bible has everything, in, everything we need to have a meaningful life. The important question, how often do you use the Bible on your own? 60% said they read the Bible between zero and four times a year. 9% said they read it every day. I don't know if you, if you caught the disconnect in these responses, where half the population said, as a culture, we would be better off with the Bible in our lives. Two-thirds of the population said that the Bible has everything we need in order to live meaningful lives. Yet almost two-thirds of that population said, I barely access it. Where two-thirds of the population recognizing the Bible is good for culture, it's good for everyone else, but not necessarily important for me or relevant for me in terms of how I live and how I operate my life. At least not important enough to wrestle with what the Scriptures say and how it may actually impact my life personally. This morning as we conclude our series on the armor of God, we started in September, and we've been walking through this, this, this section from Ephesians 6. We talked about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And over the next two weeks, we will be exploring the sword of the Spirit, which Paul clarifies for us is the Word of God, the Bible. Throughout Scripture, we get a glimpse into the importance of God's Word as we see right at the very beginning how God's Word created nothing out of, or created everything out of nothing in Genesis 1. Fast forward into Ezekiel 37, where God again speaks and speaks new life, and we see this valley of dry bones suddenly turn into a valley of living soldiers. Or Psalm 119, the passage that I read a portion of this morning where David gives this lengthy description pointing us towards the value and the importance of Scripture. Or jump into the New Testament, John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us through Jesus. Or we continue in the Gospels when that word in the flesh, Jesus, uses his own words from Deuteronomy to, to, to resist the temptation of Satan in the desert. And all of these portions of Scripture that I just referenced affirm what we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And here, yet again, in this passage, we see this imagery of God's Word compared to a sword. Now, the sword that when Paul is referencing here in Ephesians 6 is, is different than the broadsword. The broadsword I referenced in the helmet of salvation was this kind of this four-foot-long sword. But in this particular case, He's describing a sword, a sword called a gladius. A gladius sword was about 12 to 18 inches long. So if you put out your hand, you kind of measure it from your fingertips to your elbow. That's about 12 to 18 inches. That's how long a sword that we're talking about here. 
It was a sword designed specifically for hand-to-hand combat. It was, it was intended for close battles. Roman soldiers were known to be able to make four or five rapid movements within a second because their, ha- their handwork was that quick. So they could slash and thrust and stab quickly and frequently. These swords were particularly effective because their tips were so sharp. So they just stabbed and cut through flesh with ease. They were also sharp on both sides, so it didn't matter what angle the sword was at in order to strike a damaging blow to the enemy. The Romans also understood that that a deep stab was far more effective than a slash across the flesh of the skin, that a stab two or three inches deep would likely be fatal as it penetrated vital organs into the enemy. Even Even the way that the soldiers carried the gladius swords was important too. Depending on what unit you were a part of, if you were a soldier, you always wore it on the right hand. If you were a centurion, you wore it on the left. But regardless of what their dominant hand was, the sword was always wielded with the right hand, while the shield was used on the left hand. Now, why is this important? If, you have, if you're left-handed, you know sitting beside someone on the tab- at a table is a frustrating experience. My dad is left-handed, so he always sits at the end of the table because he's always bumping elbows with people. Imagine carrying a 12-inch or 18-inch sword and trying to swing, your, swing and defend yourself while your, 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 your uh, soldier beside you is doing the same thing, and, you, and your potential. understood that regardless of whether your dominant hand was left or right, they understood that the most effective tactic for their military was by creating a shield, a shield wall. So they would interlock their shields together, which, which would give their opponents virtually no target to strike. In order to strike their opponents, they would reach over their swords and they would stab down or they would reach underneath and they would slash the legs. They carried their swords very intentionally and very strategically, understanding that the strength of the army wasn't based on the individual, but it was based on the whole. And I'm sure that there are parallels to the church in that particular example, but we will carry on. The Roman soldiers, they they were trained to take every opportunity that was given to them to attack every exposed opponent in their way as long as they stayed in formation. Now, the effectiveness of the sword was at its highest when the other pieces of armor were used simultaneously and collectively with the rest of the unit. So they could both defend and offend at the appropriate and necessary times. So as Paul likens God's word or scripture to a sword, he actually gives us a description into how we can use this sword appropriately. Because absolutely there's an appropriate way and there's an inappropriate way to use this sword. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. That word inspired here in the Greek is meant to give this idea that the words that we read in the Bible originated from God. Where the the collection of books and letters are an expression of God's message to us. These words actually become an extension of the relationship that we have with Jesus. As he breathes life into these words so that they can become active and transformative in our lives. As if Jesus was beside us speaking to us in person today. One of the amazing things about the Bible 
is that it's written in such a way, I think, to accommodate the different and unique ways that different people will connect and resonate and, and understand and relate to God. We know that there are 66 books in this Bible, but we also know that if we were to, to, to categorize them, historical, narrative, poetry, prophetic, and epistles, in the same way that if you were to go to chapters or indigo, you would see a, a variety of different genres because people have different tastes and preferences. What if Scripture followed a similar premise? Whereas we read the entirety of it because we absolutely don't get to pick and choose, we read the entirety of it, that somehow in God's infinite wisdom, there was an understanding that there, that there might be actually some pieces within it that might actually resonate with us maybe a little bit more than others. For example... Some people may read the genealogies. Most of us just gloss over that, right? So-and-so begat this person, and that person begat that person, and you just wish that you could be getting on with the rest of Scripture. Most of us read it, and, and we, just pass, we just sometimes pass over those onto more interesting things. What if, what if that Scripture is in there? Because there's some people in the world who deeply appreciate the historicity of Scripture, that, it, that that actually points them to the authority of God in their lives because they can see the consistency of God at work as it aligns with history from other secular writings. Maybe for others, as we read the Psalms, and we read this beautiful poetry expressing a deep appreciation for God, and it actually, that actually helps certain people draw closer to the heart of God as well because it connects our hearts with His. And this poetry becomes this beautiful expression of God's presence in our lives, even if it was written hundreds of years ago. What if that scripture is intentionally inspired in such a way that that connects the heart and mind of ourselves and humanity with the heart of God? Where we begin to see these different, these different genres baked into Scripture to help connect the past to the present and into the future, as well as begin to help us to, to live in such a way that we have a, a deepened understanding of ourselves and of God. Where suddenly Scripture is no longer just a series of words about a bunch of dead people doing crazy, amazing things, but that the life that God has breathed into these words is the same breath that God breathed into creation or the same breath that swept over the church in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And if we use the different examples where God breathed life into various things, Genesis 1, 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha breathing life into a dead child. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, Pentecost, Acts 2. The proceeding event in each of those actions is that it leads to life, that it leads to life. And this is what we see from the remainder of Scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where we see that as Scripture is breathed out, as it is inspired by God, that it is beneficial for teaching and for rebuking. Paul is communicating to Timothy here is that everything we need points to, everything we need to point people towards Jesus is actually expressed in the teachings that they were familiar with, known as the Old Testament. Remember, they weren't working with the New Testament at this point. 
Timothy didn't know he was reading the New Testament when he read that letter from, from Paul. The Old Testament scripture is actually foundational teaching for us as we begin to understand the doctrines that are central to who Jesus is and, and his divine character. Essentially, Paul is saying that the scripture provides everything we need to drive this car known as the church. If you follow these teachings and make these central to the teachings of the church, it will keep you on track as you pursue Jesus collectively, just like the Roman army stayed together collectively in battle. Fortunately, we have the second portion as well in the New Testament. But one of the reasons why I think it's so important for us as a church, as followers of Jesus, to understand and study the Old Testament is because I think it does point us towards Jesus. There's teachings in it that point us towards Christ so that when Jesus fulfills what we see in the Old Testament, we can see the consistency of God's Word throughout history, and we can affirm the teachings throughout the Bible. Paul reminds Timothy that the Scriptures are good for rebuking. Now, the idea behind this, the, 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 probably a closer translation is the word reproof, reproofing. It's the idea of testing something. So as Paul is, is writing this letter to Timothy, what we, what we need to understand here is that there's a series of false teachings that are beginning to permeate throughout the Ephesian church. And that's what Paul's addressing here. The false teachers would take advantage of the, the, the lesser educated women. Remember, women didn't have the same academic advantages of men. And so these, these cultic leaders kind of maintain their, this, this idea of taking advantage of and, and um, taking advantage of manipulating and preying upon the vulnerable. Some of the cultic teachings would have related to heresy called Gnosticism. There's also legalistic Judaism, and there was pagan worship of the goddess Artemis that, we, that was also very influential. We talked a little bit about this last year when, as we were working through the book of Ephesians. Unfortunately, though, their influence, was, as I said, was starting to weave its way through the Christian church. But here's why Paul is addressing this. Although the Jews and the Gnostics and the Christians were all using the Old Testament they were coming to very different conclusions about God and how to devote their lives towards Him. Paul here is saying, whenever we hear something, whenever we are taught something, we need to filter it through with what Scripture says. So why is this important today? Because today in our world, our world will say a variety of different things about who God is. Our world will say a variety of different things about who you are. Our world will say a variety of different things about how we discover purpose in our own lives. As we consider what our identity is, as we consider all of the different messages that we hear throughout our lives and throughout each day, Paul is saying here that we, we filter all of those messages through with what this book says. So that the Bible actually becomes this filter that helps us to identify what messages to accept that are consistent with Scripture compared to other messages that might be inconsistent with Scripture that we actually should reject. So Scripture then becomes this, this baseline for every aspect of our lives. 
using it to keep us focused on Jesus rather than, to keep it, rather than focusing on the opinions of others or even our own opinions. For example, in those times where we may actually have maybe some, some negative self-talk or maybe we feel the weight of, of shame from our sin choices or we question the goodness of God for one reason or another, scripture, we use Scripture then to fill, as a filter to say, let's point us towards truth rather than our own experiences. Paul continues, and he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuking or reproofing. But then he also says, It's also good for correction, for training in righteousness. So what we're seeing here is that there's that contrast in both sections where Paul is saying that Scripture helps us to stay on the right track, making sure that we follow the rules of the road, per se, but also shows us that God's Word can actually help steer us back on course when we get off course. Paul is reminding us here that, that we can use Scripture to maintain this, this steady strength that doesn't vacillate back and forth and up and down as we are swayed by our different experiences. Instead, we can adjust, we can, instead we can respond appropriately to the situations and circumstances that we might be tempted to react to, instead of just maintaining this steady course on the foundation of Scripture, moving in the direction that God has called us into. Lastly, Paul says that we use Scripture in training for righteousness, where God's Word points us to a way that actually directs how we live, where God's Word doesn't always give us specifics, but I think that there are enough, there's, there is enough in God's Word that helps to direct our lives to know how to live in a way that is right. In the same way that we might read a car manual to understand the rules of the road, God's Word, I think, gives us some very great principles that help steer our lives as well. Now, as I said, admittedly, there, the Scripture doesn't always give us very clear things, doesn't always give us specifics. Like, what political party to vote for? There's enough, there's enough truth in, in God's Word, though, to help us see what the value in, what, in one party or another, which, as followers of Jesus, we might want to align ourselves with. Scripture also doesn't tell us what exactly we should spend our money on, but it does talk about financial stewardship. God's Word doesn't tell us how we should respond to a pandemic in 2021 but does talk about living lives rooted in self-control and unity and fearlessness and doing things that are beneficial, not just because they are permissible. The thinking here is that God is more concerned with the heart rather than the outward appearance. It offers ways for us to correct our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions towards a life that God actually approves of. However, I said that he talks that the Bible often talks about in principles, but he does talk about specifics as well. Like when we've been hurt by someone, we forgive them. Talks about specifics and how we love other people. Do to others as you would have done to yourself. So be patient and be kind. Don't envy or be boastful. Don't be proud or dishonor others or be self-seeking. Don't keep, records or, don't keep records of wrongs or be easily angered. Instead, rejoice in the truth. Protect and trust and hope and always persevere. God's Word also gives us very specific practices when it comes to handling conflict in Matthew 18. And so this morning, 
as we consider God's word as a sword given to us by the Spirit of God. We recognize that the word of God brings life. That it is intended to grow in us a deepened intimacy with Jesus that aligns our heart with his. We recognize that God's word helps us to discern the messages we hear throughout our lives and know what's from God and what isn't. We also recognize through God's word that one of Satan's principal efforts is to steal and kill and destroy and to impose his darkness an evil agenda in this world. But we also know that this is a sword. This is a sword that cuts through darkness, like a double-edged sword. It cuts through the darkness. And as we live out the truths of God's Word, as we live out the light that God has poured into this Word, into our lives, The light of God's truth shines through us and exposes the lies that exist in this world through word and action. So this morning, as we we carry this sword given to us by the Holy Spirit, I wanted to offer a couple of ways that we can wield this sword. Because as the Barna Institute showed us, it's it's good. People believe that it's good for us, but the survey shows us that No one knows how to wield it, or no one cares to wield it. So the first thing that I would say is start by reading it. People will often ask me, you know, what's the best translation to read? The first place that I would start is pick up the one that you're going to read. There's lots of different translations, lots of different versions. Some have language that you may not understand or comprehend. There's also others that, are, that might be too simplified or abbreviated for you. Find a version that fits your reading and comprehension level and read it so that it changes you. One of the biggest challenges many of us face will be studying God's Word in such a way that it transforms us. Sometimes we can read it thinking, oh, this would be perfect for someone else. And as a pastor, confession time, That's the biggest temptation that I have to wrestle with as I open God's Word on a regular basis. Oh, this would make a great sermon. But I have to consistently remind myself as I read God's Word that I have to preach the sermon to myself before I even consider preaching it anywhere else. Sometimes we read God's Word for information's sake. And information is good. And we gather lots of concepts and doctrines. But sometimes we miss out on the reality that it's a living word that produces life and builds intimacy between us and Jesus. If you're looking for a great place to start as we've been been walking through 2 Timothy 3.16, if you're looking for a good place to maybe unpack that even further, go to Psalm 119. There's there's a lot in that chapter that that broadens and expands that that, that one verse. Why is this important? Paul tells us in Ephesians that Satan will use all kinds of deceptions to trick us and turn us away from God. Jesus shows us that by securing the inspired word of God in our lives, that Satan actually flees. He can't stand against the breath of God. This is a quick survey. Anyone know the book of the Bible that says, my breath is offensive to my wife? It is Job. Very good. 
God's breath is offensive to Satan. He is offended by the breath of God as his word is rooted in our lives. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. But that's why we do programs like the VBS. Because we think it's important to breathe the word of God into our young people. It's important for us to breathe, have the word of God breathed into us. So this morning, how do we root? How do we root it in our lives? In God, how do we root our lives in God's word so that it accomplishes what it's intended to? I think the best way for me is I, is I, the best imagery for me to help me to imagine it is the idea of breathing. Just take a breath in from, just and hold it there. Just hold it in. Think of this, think of reading God's word like spiritual CPR. You can exhale, by the way. Where God breathes his inspired word into us. And as, and we, as we pray, and as we read God's word, we ask God these questions. God, what do you want to breathe into me today? What do I need to inhale that is of you today? Or alternatively, where do, I need, where do I feel like the breath of life has been sucked out of me? Where do I feel winded because of a lie that I've chosen to believe? And as we inhale, we obviously have to exhale. And the response in that exhale is, what is it that I need to correct in how I am living my life today? How will what I just read in God's Word affect my life moving forward? Or again, alternatively, what lie am I living out today in my attitude or in my actions? God's Word is an active, double-edged sword, ready to transform us and reveal God's love for us as we allow it to speak into our lives and change us. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that your word changes us. We believe that there is richness front to back that can transform who we are. Lord, our longing is to, to know you deeper, to, more in, to know you more intimately. Would you help us to read this the, the, the contents of this book, the words in this book in such a way that, 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 it, that it changes us to be more like you. Lord, our heart's desire is to, to be transformed. Help us to be intentional with that. Lord, we don't want to be the, the 60% that only read this Bible, only read this book zero to four times a year. Help us to be people that, that study it, that pour over it, that grow in intimacy with it, because we know that as we do that, we grow in intimacy with you, Jesus. Help us to wield this sword well in our own lives and, and outward. We pray this in your name. Amen.